Adam, Carl, thank you. Thank you, Mariah. Thank you, Matt. And thanks in advance to Dr. Scott Gibson, who will lead in our benediction. Over the time that I've been privileged to serve as dean of our seminary, I have sought in the various convocation addresses that I have given to identify and to explore various aspects of our school's history and identity, as well as our seminary's mission and vision. Given that Truett self-identifies as an orthodox, evangelical, multi-denominational school in the historic Baptist tradition embedded into a Christian research university, this morning I would like to consider together one facet or aspect of evangelicalism as set forth by one of our seminary's regular adjunct professors, Dr. David Bebbington, in his highly influential quadrilateral. The aspect, crucicentrism. I would like to do so under the heading, Four Crosses, One Christ. Before doing so, would you please pause and pray with me? Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a flowing fountain. Free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Amen. I'm like Dr. Arterberry. I am not a gospel scholar. I am, however, a gospel student, and over the span of ministry, I have thankfully had the opportunity to preach and to teach from the Gospels with some regularity. If you're not preaching and teaching from the Gospels, probably something is not quite right. One of the books that has greatly aided my understanding and significantly strengthened my communication of the fourfold gospel witness is the valuable and accessible volume written by Richard Burridge, entitled, Four Gospels, One Jesus, A Symbolic Reading. Therein, to summarize, Burridge interprets Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in conjunction with the ancient Christian symbols associated with each gospel. He examines Matthew's portrait of Jesus then through the lens of the human face, as in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is forever the teacher. In Mark, Jesus is portrayed as a lion. Burridge cannot help himself to introduce us to Aslan. While in Luke, Jesus is viewed and Burridge reads him as a burden-bearing ox. And then... Borrowing from Tolkien and Farsight, in John, Jesus is the high-flying eagle. For all of the discernible and consequential differences between the canonical Gospels, which in turn have given rise to necessary scholarly pursuits, Burridge answers the question posed in the book's title in the affirmative. Four Gospels, one Jesus? 
while? Yes. Diversity notwithstanding, he contends that all four of the evangelists proclaim a singular figure, Jesus of Nazareth, as Lord and Savior. For my part, I wholeheartedly and warmly concur with the primary claim of Burridge's book. As it happens, then, one upshot of his study is that non-canonical or apocryphal gospels, although sometimes informative and even entertaining, which of us has not gotten a chuckle with Jesus's uh, pigeon project where he claps his hands and off they fly, be that as it may, these gospels are not normative for matters of belief and behavior, faith and practice. The title for today's address, Four Crosses, One Christ, is inspired by the title of Burridge's study. Although I have not employed a question mark in my title, and I don't even have a subtitle. If you write for Erdman's, that's a problem. They like subtitles. I do, however, have in mind four crosses that adorn our building and grounds that point to and offer praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Before identifying and reflecting briefly upon each of them, suffer me a few remarks about crosses in general. Over the sweep of Christian history, scores of crosses have been conceived and constructed, primarily by Christians themselves, who have taken an instrument of Roman torture and execution and turned it, subverted it, into a Christological symbol of sacrificial love. When you have a spare moment, not now please, perform a Google search, entering in the search field, types of crosses, and you'll see what I mean. They proliferate. Before her recent retirement, Miss Dorothy Terry worked in the Dean's office at Truett Seminary, and from time to time, I would go into her office to see the various crosses that she had displayed on her office walls. I frankly had lost count. <clears throat> Additionally, when I enter into the vestibule of the church where we worship, First Waco, I am frequently drawn to the beauty and majesty of the cross tapestry that is prominently and strategically hung there. Similarly, as I walk to and from and around our spacious Spa Reynolds campus, I frequently focus on four crosses. To be sure, there are others, including the one behind the welcoming Christ in the chancel window in front of you, but I focus upon four most regularly. Of course, the first and most visible is the steeple cross. This sizable, simple, gilded gold cross adorns the spire of the Powell Chapel. Put into place on May 30th, 2001, beginning at 7.30 a.m., it has been securely placed on a lofty perch so that people who pass by our building might see it. It can be seen from Interstate 35, and even rises above the Herd Welcome Center that is being constructed across the street from our campus. 
in seeing the steeple cross. The hope is that people might be drawn, not simply to the cross itself, but to the Christ of the cross, who declared, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Additionally, one can hope that when people see the steeple cross dedicated to the life and memory of Chase Gray, that they might also infer that what happens here is marked by the sign of the cross. A second external cross to our campus, to which we may refer as the clock tower cross or the Truett cross, is not as visible as the steeple cross, but neither is it easily placed under a peck measure. It is particularly prominent when one is on the back side of our building. I don't know about you, I tend to view behind me as the front and in front of me as the back, but as it happens, before they decided to shut down third, uh, there was actually a circular drive and it worked rather nice. This was the front. But those who are now on the back side of our building can see this cross. It appears also throughout the building in various places in much smaller forms, not least on dedicatory plaques. So next time you walk into a Truett classroom or office, take a careful look and you're going to see a Truett cross. What is a Truett cross? Well, adopted in 1994 to represent the seminary, the flame at the top of the cross represents the Holy Spirit, not unlike the flame in the chancel window. Additionally, the cross piece represents an open Bible, and the shaft represents the cross itself. So, the Truett cross testifies that the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit bear witness to the crucified Christ. A third cross also external to our building, is well situated so that people who are approaching our campus from the main campus might see the empty cross. Designed by arguably the foremost Christian sculptor of our time, Max Greiner Jr., Truett's empty cross weighs 536 pounds and is seven feet seven inches tall to represent perfection. This contemporary rendition of the cross, which was dedicated last year on February 22nd on the occasion of the 20th anniversary celebration of the dedication of the Ball Reynolds campus, is made of reddish brown core tin steel, so to represent the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. And as it happens, it's not meant to be treated, and the patina will only become a richer red with time. The empty or hollow cross design not only symbolizes that whosoever will may come, but the cross's open construction is also meant to signify that Jesus passed from crucifixion to resurrection. Jesus is no longer on the cross, neither is he in the grave. Rather, he, the crucified, risen, ascended Christ, is seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory, as Romans 8 reminds, interceding for us. A fourth 
And finally, um, uh, a final cross prominently displayed here on our campus may now be seen above the mantle of the fireplace in the Paul and Katie Piper Great Hall, just next door. This most recent addition to Truett's cross collection, if we can call it that, is the mantle cross, which was received and hung on April 21st, 2022. It might also be thought of and spoken of as the Roth cross. This wooden cross, made of walnut from a Georgia homestead, is 40 inches tall, 28 inches wide, and was handcrafted by Dr. Howard Roth. Dr. Roth, who is, among other things, a generous scholarship donor to our seminary, taught mathematics at Baylor for 35 years before retiring in 1998. For 26 of those years, that is from 1971 to 1997, he served as chair of the Department of Mathematics. As it happens, in one of these divine providences, Dr. Roth's grandson from Tyler, Texas, Andrew McClintock, is the son of Dr. Roth's daughter, Stephanie, and Andrew is not only a Baylor graduate, but he is a current Truett student. These four crosses then, while different, collectively symbolize and bear witness to the cross of Christ. And more important yet, to the Christ of the cross. Paul both begins and ends his impassioned letter to Galatian congregations by focusing upon the crucified Christ, as Dr. Kim's readings note. In 1.4, the Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who gave himself for our sins, to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Then, near the end of the letter, after the apostle has declared, see with what large letters that I write, with the stylus secured in his calloused hand, he inscribes, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, or perhaps through which, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Although Christ's crucifixion was central to Paul's proclamation when he is with the Galatians, remember at the outset of chapter 3, he says, uh, You foolish Galatians, before whose eyes I have placarded Christ. There were certain agitators or troublers, as Paul labels them, but preferably not Judaizers. That's another topic for another time. They had stolen in among them and were, at least in Paul's view, seeking to diminish the necessity and the centrality of the cross by emphasizing certain aspects of the law, not least the circumcision of male Gentile converts. For Paul, this flew in the face of the baptismal formula that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. For Paul, 
This then was no trifling matter. And so he's at pains throughout the letter to disabuse the Galatians of the mistaken notion that Jesus' life-giving death needed to be propped up by necessary, though temporary, mosaic instruction. For Paul, it's not the cross plus, it is the cross period, or better yet, exclamation point. It is foolish, the apostle asserts, to live life in a B.C. way in an A.D. day. Nowhere in Galatians, a letter rightly and deeply loved by Luther, among others. In fact, it was Luther who said, it is my Katerina von Bora to whom I have plighted my troth. I don't know what Katie thought about that. But Luther loved this letter, and nowhere in this letter is the necessity and centrality of the cross for Christ followers clearer than in Paul's autobiographical and personal remarks set forth in Galatians 2, 19 through 21. Let's hear these words again. There Paul testifies. For through the law I died to the law, that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But it doesn't, and he didn't. Right standing before God, Paul insists, is grounded in and based upon grace through faith which flows from the one who was hung upon a pole, becoming a curse for us so that we might be redeemed and blessed. And whatever theory or theories of the atonement that we might embrace and espouse, I trust that they and that we will leave sufficient room for human transgression against God on the one hand and divine intervention through the atoning death of Christ on the cross on the other hand. Even as Paul emphasizes the centrality of the crucified Christ in Galatians, he also expresses his steadfast commitment to minister to the Galatians so that they might be formed in Christ. Growing up, I was perplexed as to know what the goal of the Christian life actually was. And it's rather amazing how many options are on offer. Over time, I've begun to think that it may well be that the ultimate goal of life in Christ is to be conformed to his character and likeness. In Galatians 4, 19 through 20, Paul declares, My children, for whom I am again in the pangs of childbirth, until Christ is formed 
in you. I wish that I could be with you now and might change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Cruciformity, or perhaps Christiformity, is the goal, the aim, the end of life in Christ. And the crucified Christ beckons us to a cruciformed life, which reminds us of that remarkable statement of Bonhoeffer, when Jesus bids us follow him, he bids us come and die. At Truett Seminary, we seek to purposefully pair rigorous academic instruction with intentional spiritual formation, both of which are done in a caring community characterized by intellectual curiosity and hopefully humility with a view to serve ultimately Christ and the church. Curricular and co-curricular emphasis then upon spiritual formation and discipleship at Truett is anything but extraneous hoop jumping. Rather, it is part and parcel of and one piece with what we believe constitutes faithful, fruitful, Christ-following, and ministering in his name. It is all too easy for us, myself included, perhaps myself especially, to be close to the cross and to be far from Christ. So may we who handle the holy traffic in the transcendent, not solely the sacred through sophisticated unbelief, lukewarm indifference, or perfunctory professionalism. Cruciformity with Christ and conformity to Christ are, in the final analysis, either side of the same coin. If one is the obverse, the other is the reverse. In order to be more fully conformed to Christ's character and likeness, we must according to Galatians 5, 24 and 25, not only continue to crucify the flesh, that is, our sinful self inclined to engage in central, uh, sinful acts. Paul, in fact, creates for himself in chapter 5 a vice list. It's not a pretty sight. But we must also, if that's negation, there's also a reception. We must also live by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And when we keep in step with the Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit, which is in concert with and a reflection of the character of Christ, it will be made manifest in our lives. So as we begin another semester, let us allow the Lord to have his way with us. May we sing the song of surrender, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. And near the base of a memorial stone, created in honor of our seminary's namesake, 
located in the Sparkman Hillcrest Memorial Park on Northwest Highway in Dallas, just down the way from Park City's Baptist Church, one finds these words written on George W. Truitt's memorial stone. Thy will be done. May these four words mark and animate our lives and ministries. As we abide in Christ, then the one who is the vine, we will bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control against which there is no law at all. And ironically, though realistically in so doing, we will fulfill the law by serving one another humbly in love. For, according to Galatians 5, 14, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And may we be ever mindful that in order to love our neighbor well, that we must love God with every fiber of our beings, heart, mind, soul, strength. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ sent His Son and the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the one who cries out, Abba, Father. The Christ in whom we are to live lives in us, even as He loved us and gave Himself for us. In response to His great grace and promised presence, how can we not say, this is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. Just perhaps the crosses on our campus will regularly remind us of and call us to that good and glorious end. Amen.